This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here today on the show, Trayville Anderson, who is a podcast host, actually has a podcast on this very network called Fanti, and also is a host of the show, What a Day, and Crooked Media, journalist, writer, author, writer, author? Yes! Please enjoy the episode. This is a great chat. What a, what an interesting person doing awesome work. Oh, hey, also... Do you love awesome work? Because I have a new show coming Tuesdays in Los Angeles. Right now, it is monthly. It is the second Tuesday in Los Angeles at 7.30 p.m. at the Elysian Theater. Right now, this is the coolest, hippest place you could possibly see comedy in Los Angeles. And if you go to CameronEsposito.com, you can get tickets. Well, you know what? I should put a ticket link up just to make sure that that's true. But uh, we're trying to sell a bunch of tickets for October 10th, for the November and December show, which again happens on the second Tuesday of both of those months. And then hopefully, if we do well in the new year, it will be every Tuesday. So please come on out, make this possible. That is October 10th or November 14th or December 12th. You don't live in Los Angeles? I don't know, fly here. That might sound wild, but honestly, many people have done it. I can be your vacation. Enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Let's just go. Let's go. Let's go. Um, I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Trayvall Anderson. I use they, them pronouns. I am a journalist, a podcaster, and an authoress times mm-hmm. two. I came out with two books this year. One's called uh, We See Each Other, A Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. And the other is called Historically Black Phrases from I Want Yellow Friends to Who All Gone Be There. Um, and I do a few other things as well. Listen, one thing you said right before we started recording was... Um that this is, these are your jammies. This, this, this is your undies? These are your undies. <laughs> well, this is like my my house outfit, which is just like a muumu, an oversized, you know, shirt that's very billowy that somebody's, you know, grandmother might typically wear. Um, What's but going I, on here? What's going on with your skin, though? Is this how you, is it, did, this is how you woke up? You're glowing. Oh, my. Thank you so much. I love you already, Cameron. Um, Great compliments for me. I'm a Leo. So, like, keep them coming. You got it, baby. (laughs) But, like, seriously, tell me what's going on. Did you? Is this this your face? This is is just just a morning wash. And, you know, went into the world. You got to drink your water, kids. Okay, that's what they tell me. Listen, (laughs) listen, always working on it. Um. Here's the thing. Listen, we got so much to discuss. I want to talk about you. I also want to talk about your work. There's, you know, they go together, but there's two different things going on. Absolutely. So, um, one thing I want to start by talking about is your education, because I think this is interesting. At least it's interesting to me. Uh Uh-huh. Because I I did a glance. I did Uh a cursory glance. And I believe that you went to Morehouse and then Stanford. Yes. And now that is interesting to me because I don't know what your experience is, but just like, (laughs) like at a glance, I feel like, oh, those seem like two different experiences. Like that (laughs) seems, you know, to go from an HBCU to an Ivy. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to do like a cursory fucking tell me about that yeah tell me about that so it was it was you know it was a shift um not only because morehouse is an hbcu and stanford is obviously a predominantly white institution Mm -hmm. but also because Mm -hmm. morehouse is a you know all-male institution 
Um, it is, you know, famous for its 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 alumni, which includes Samuel L. Jackson, Spike Lee, Martin Luther King Jr. himself, and me, of course. Yeah. Um, and for me, as somebody who was like queer on that campus, who was coming into, you know, their non-binary identity during that time period, it was a lot. It wasn't easy. I talk a little bit about it um, in my book um, in terms of just the experiences of navigating this environment that is, you know, built on a type of masculinity that I would describe as toxic um, and also deeply historically religious as an institution. Um, and then to go from there to to Stanford um, was really interesting, largely because, you know, I feel like we at Morehouse, despite all of the foolishness that I navigated, we're taught to like be super confident and secure in what we bring to a particular space um, and the uniqueness of, of our identities and, and, and our contributions to culture. And then at Stanford was an opportunity to like put that in practice, I say, because I was in this program, this journalism program, where, you know, they were very clear that they wanted to create a certain type of journalist. Um, and I was not, am not that type of journalist um, in so many ways. So, you know, it was interesting to say the least. I mean, I want to break this down even further, if, if you don't mind. Let's do it. You know, because I feel like, so my, I went to school in Boston mm -hmm. and close nearby uh, are a bunch of like predominantly white institutions mm -hmm. that are like sister colleges where they used to be called women's colleges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then during my time living in Boston was like the first shift. Cause I had, I dated somebody who'd gone there and it was like the first shift in understanding like what it might mean for enrollment or for mm -hmm. um, like respect in housing, you know? So like, that's my entry point toward understanding what, um, single sex, mm -hmm. how single sex colleges have dealt with this, but it's, it's different because mm -hmm. it's, well, first of all, um, I am part of a couple communities where there are like, I go to some support groups where there are men's versions and mm -hmm. women's versions mm -hmm. and the women's versions have changed over time to be women and non-binary. Right. And the men's versions have not, which is right. funny to me because it's like, <laughs> so you mean, so you mean non-binary people are women because if, because if it's, because if they're only included there, then you're, do you yeah. realize what you're saying? Um, yeah. So that's an interesting thing. I am less familiar with how this is being navigated in historically single sex HBCUs. Mm -hmm. um, I know that Morehouse and Spelman also have mm -hmm. a relationship. So like, I don't know if it's different between, and this, I could do my own research, but just because you happen to have the lived experience, yeah. um, I don't know what how Morehouse might be accommodating for this. I don't know, like in housing, you know, yeah. I'm very curious you know. about anything you might want to share. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned Spelman College. Spelman College is an historically black all women's institution. Mm -hmm. um, Spelman College is across the street, literally, mm -hmm. from Morehouse College in Atlanta, yes. Georgia. Um, and then right behind us is Clark Atlanta University, which is a co-ed institution. And then there are a couple of other institutions that make up what we call the Atlanta University Consortium Center, which is like this collection of HBCUs. Anyway, um, so yes, Morehouse and Spelman are considered brother-sister institutions because of that history. Um, we do a lot of programming together, even though they're like independent institutions. The students, um, Spelmanites can take classes at Morehouse. Morehouse students can take classes at Spelman and Clark Atlanta, for that matter. A lot of our social activities are together. Um, and so it, it ends up feeling like this big university, if you will, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though 
each institution, you know, has their particular rules. Um, and I will say in that regard, Morehouse and Spelman have also kind of dealt with LGBTQ issues in their history very differently. Um, similar to that example you mentioned of like the the women's groups That's becoming more one. inclusive, yeah. but the men's groups not. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Or at least having a, a harder line to tell there, presumably they would like us to believe. Um, and so it's very similar. Spelman College has actually been one of the institutions um, that has kind of led the conversation around um, Black and LGBTQ identity on college campuses writ large, not just on their institution. Um, They have a a very notable um, um, woman um, from Black feminist theory circles, Beverly Guy Sheftal, who has been um, a longtime professor and, and department head there, who's been like pushing the envelope for that institution in particular for decades at this point. Meanwhile, at Morehouse College, um, while they are a lot more inclusive on paper today than they were when I was a student a decade ago, um, there's still a lot more room to go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think a lot a lot of the activity and the progress that has happened on campus has been a result of student activism. You know, mm-hmm. queer people on campus, myself included, when I was there, um, feeling as if certain rules, certain policies weren't right like we my sophomore my freshman year rather they instituted an appropriate attire policy a dress code um one of the tenets of the dress code was that um students could not wear clothing associated with women um and when this became a bigger news story cnn came to campus vibe magazine did a a major article the vice president of student services at the time william bynum said that that line in the appropriate attire policy was specifically geared to a handful of students who were you know presenting themselves in ways that the institution did not think appropriate um and that group of students that he was talking about um were known on campus as the plastics yes in reference to the Mean Girls. Um, And it was this group of like five, there was this group of five students on campus who, you know, they were gender nonconforming at the time. Some of them are trans people today. um, And they wore makeup and bags and heels and, you know, women's clothing. Um, And I often say, I say in my book, we see each other that, you know, in so many ways, despite the the ire that was directed at them both by folks in our alumni base as well as other students on campus they were like you know some of the first instances of you know transness and gender nonconformity that i was able to like see and touch you know personally um that i think contributed to you know my developing and and unflowering you know over the years as well i want to just even mark for a moment just like have some gratitude for the fact that you're a journalist because it means that you like that you work with words and something that you just said (laughs) that i noted was clothing associated with women Mm -hmm. which i just is a just pointing it out as a phrase Mm -hmm. it's a interesting uh it's a it's a helpful phrase i like that phrase i'm gonna (laughs) i wrote it down because as opposed to women's clothing yeah um and you know we can also look i'm not i'm probably not gonna always nail that but i like having that in my lexicon i like the idea that that could be included i think that's rad you know so yay yay for yay for working with words (laughs) (laughs) um i also want to go back to what you said about stanford which is you know you just sort of you said something approximate to the phrase like this i wasn't the journalist that they were Mm -hmm. that, that they're usually prepping um and i'm Look, I think I know what you mean, but <laughs> I don't want to make assumptions. I don't mind spelling it out. So please tell me more. Yeah, I think the the program that I was in at that time, they were interested in making newspaper journalists. They were interested in, you know, hard news folks, right? Um, and that's not to say I wasn't interested in doing hard news per se. I mean, I wasn't really, but um, I knew... I knew from the beginning that I wanted to tell stories about black people and I wanted to tell stories about queer people. And I wanted to do it in in the ways that made most sense to me, which often means, you know, using language that, you know, we use in our communities. Um, And 
Not to say that it wasn't supported when I was in grad school, but it just wasn't, it wasn't really part of the curriculum. Like we went two, two semesters um, or two, we are on the quarter system. We went two quarters um, in our seminar class in which they brought in working journalists for us to talk to and interview and like pick their brain. Um, and two, two, two quarters in, none of the reporters that they had brought in were black people. And that felt odd to me um, because how assuming that these people you are selecting to come speak to us about their careers are representatives of the types of, you know, careers and work you would like Mm -hmm. us to do. The fact that you have not brought in a black person tells the black person who's in your program. There were two of us, two out of 10 um, in in our program. Um, It tells me that like something about the ways that I'm showing up, particularly with an interest in doing more culture oriented stories might not, you know, fair, you know, in this particular space. Um, And so I found myself, you know, I think often in an um, antagonistic type of role in Mm -hmm. some of my courses, um, because they would be lifting up various examples of journalism as, you know, things that we should aspire to. And then when I would point out that like, oh, this article that covered the riots in Detroit that you think is a perfect example of the type of work we should aspire to actually marginalizes black people, doesn't doesn't have any kind of cultural context about how the riots, you know, were impacting, you know, the black folks in this black ass city known as Detroit, Michigan. And perhaps that is a, you know, a dead angle of the, of this writer that you love so much that you want us to emulate. Um, And Mm -hmm. let's just say some of the instructors weren't too, uh, too happy about me, you know, pointing out some, some of those things. (laughs) Sure. You know, um, but because of my my experience at Morehouse, you know, I felt very comfortable, you know, um, asking questions of professors, calling out things that that did not seem appropriate. Um, I often say that I'm a sociologist by training because that's what I studied in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that gives me at least a little energy to be able like, well, now, hold on, let's slow down. You said this thing is amazing, but maybe it's not as amazing as you thought it was. I mean, for sure. I I think I'm happy. I was. So first of all, I mean, the funny thing about that is like two in 10, which is also one in five Mm -hmm. is, I mean, that's a, that's actually a high percentage. I think sometimes, you know what, but what I mean is like, I think sometimes we, Somebody might say in, like, say if they're on Fox News, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why do we need this? And it's, I just want to, you know, that's why I just want to mark that, like, that is actually a high percentage of people in that program to not ever feel directly spoken to, you know, like, and oh, yes. and we also wish it was higher, right? Like, we wish oh, it was, yes. you know, yeah. ever moving toward parity, but, like, yeah, one in five is is high to go through an entire program yeah. without feeling directly addressed. Like that's a that's a big deal. And um, when I brought it up to them that I recognize this, you want to know what happened? They made me invite find a black person. They made me find a black person <laughs> and invite a black person, which I did, and she was yeah. amazing. And she mm-hmm. now has become a mentor of sorts for me in 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 my career. Um, but like that's yet another example of the ways that, you know, folks of color, queer people, black folks especially, you know, end up having to do extra work to make yep. ourselves feel, you know, a sense of belonging when the institution itself should be, you know, thinking about those types of things. Yes, absolutely. I also was struck by just thinking about this whole educational experience and, you know, maybe feeling feeling a little bit on the inside for a very, for a variety of reasons, either you're a black person at a historically black university or uh, you're a journalist in a journalist program, mm-hmm. but the idea of always being positioned on the fringes and I mean, 
look, I don't love that for you. <laughs> I don't love it for me. I feel like sometimes I, like as a comic, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but like, I, I can't remember when it was. Some There was just a moment, a very clear moment. I was like watching somebody talk about like Doritos or whatever. It was like a cis straight dude, mm. white cis straight dude. And just talk about, and I was like, man, I guess that could be something that could be a big deal for you. That could be your whole act. Like maybe you're just so in the middle of it mm-hmm. that that's what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And it like, it like blew my mind because I have received so much feedback in my career about the the activism that I do. Mm-hmm. That is like number one. Sometimes I act. Sometimes I do activism, but most most often I'm just like talking about my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which again is activism, yeah. but also is it is a forced is a forced position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What the fuck else am I supposed to do? Talk about your life? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm talking about my life. That's what everybody's doing. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I just had a lot of compassion for you as you were yeah. talking. I mean, I resonate with that, though, right? Like, this idea that, like, you know, those of us who come from, you know, marginalized or otherwise historically excluded communities, when we find ourselves in certain spaces doing certain things, just by the very nature of articulating, you know, our desires, our positionings, our experiences, it is deemed as activism is deemed as advocacy and like you know yeah it is i guess but it really is just like i'm just telling y'all this this is this is this is my experience now if you if you were more attuned to the centering of other people's experiences as opposed to your own perhaps it wouldn't come off as activism perhaps it wouldn't come off as as advocacy right but because you know those individuals are often the ones who are used to being centered right and those of us who are most most often marginalized aren't um, it will always feel like we're we're doing some sort of advocacy. Like I I remember being in 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 newsrooms and being told in a newsroom I should say the Los Angeles Times, um, and being told in various different ways right that um certain aspects of my identity or you know going to the pride parade or saying black lives matter was like advocacy they were political statements Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to statements of truth and fact you know yes Um, yes which we as journalists should 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 stand on truth and fact uh-huh. Um, saying yeah. trans lives matter should not be a political statement that calls into question my ability to report on trans issues. But, uh-huh. you know, sometimes it does for interesting reasons. Yeah. I mean, actually, not saying trans lives matter is also a political <laughs> stance. So that part. Cute exactly. on you. Cute on you uh, exactly. to that person. Um, I know. I wish that more. You know what I would watch? I would watch cisgender comics talking about gender. I want to know why they fucking wore that dress. I want to know what's up with their like mustache. Fucking talk about it, please. I'm actually interested. Tell me everything. Yes. Why does your body look like that? How are you styling yourself? Like I'm that that would be so interesting to me <sighs> because it's unrelatable. I don't get it. I don't understand how people figure out how to do that. I want to know. <laughs> Tell me. You know what else I'm I'm thinking about um I just like, this is just calling to mind. I had that one, uh, this was recently. Mm, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I was, it was, I was doing an interview for the Chicago Tribune mm-hmm. and the person asked me what my pronouns were, which was like, okay, I mean, all right. Um, and then I said, why well, use she and they? And he said, that's too confusing. So never mind. <laughs> oh, no. And I didn't like, fight for it because I just was so I think I was flummoxed it was still Mm -hmm. pretty new to me Mm -hmm. to say that Mm -hmm. but it's it is funny also because even as I think about it now it's like this is you just go Esposito Mm -hmm. comma Mm -hmm. who uses she and they Mm -hmm. pronouns comma there you go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. done 
Wow. You know, I do think <laughs> the industry has gotten, you know, better at, yeah. you know, multiple pronouns, they them pronouns. But I remember when I was at the LA Times in particular, I got in a number of, of debates with a copy desk about using gender neutral pronouns, about using Oh, numerous pronouns for people who use multiple pronouns. Um, I remember interviewing somebody who, um, who, who, who used he hyphen she as their pronoun, he, she as their pronoun. Um, and, you know, that sent the copy desk into a tizzy, honey. Um, but, That's you know, like I do think. That's kind of great, though. I oh, no, it was I've amazing. never heard of that. <laughs> And oh no! Like, it was amazing. Cheers! <laughs> it was it was amazing, and I was like, you know what? That was I was I was at that point in my career where I was like very game to have these debates and these uh-huh. fights with the copy desk, and so I was like, yeah. he she's your pronoun. It absolutely is, and so let me you know put my communities you know on my back and go into this meeting mm-hmm. um, and make the case for why we should use he she as a pronoun, even though you know the many complexities around he she as 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 a phrase that we as, oh, yeah, as trans sure. people often uh get 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 thrown at us as a means of like delegitimizing and dehumanizing us right yeah but that was this person's pronouns and that's what they go by so we we should do it and so the industry has come a long way in in terms of that right the associated press is the you know the bible of the the industry and so like they now um have guidance on using they them pronouns or multiple pronouns um but i I, it resonates with me with me you you telling that story of just like even just letting it go because like it it is new for you at that moment or it can Mm -hmm. be deeply uncomfortable to be like Mm -hmm. well what you mean it's too comp it's too Mm -hmm. huh um and so like it often puts us in that position where we have to to you know allow people to misgender us or not fully, you know, capture, you mm-hmm. know, how we see ourselves as a means of just like surviving, right? And and moving to the next thing that we have to do. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! You know, also, I will say that, like, just personally, um, right now in my life, I am okay with, um, I am okay also, I mean, whatever, that was fucked. I wasn't okay with that. <laughs> right. But I am okay with people defaulting to she. Like, that doesn't mm-hmm. super bother me. Um, actually, not super. It doesn't bother me. Something that is interesting is my wife, like, sometimes my wife will be talking about me in front of me mm-hmm. and will, like, reference speaking to someone else and so use a pronoun for me. And it is, like, it feels real cute when she mixes it up because it makes me feel like... Um, I see the effort there, you Mm -hmm. know, and not that like it's so effortful, but I just see, especially because it's multiple, like it's not Mm -hmm. just adopting one. Mm -hmm. I see her utilize Mm -hmm. multiple, like maybe in the same sentence or whatever, Mm -hmm. or in the same paragraph. And I'm just like, look at you. It always makes you just (laughs) go like, look at you, you know? And so. I love that. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit more about, you know, because writing a book about the black trans experience, about Mm -hmm. identifying with other black trans folks, I, especially in like media, Mm -hmm. for me, I feel like, so there's like the people I 
know or have been to parties with <laughs> in my time working in Los Angeles. I moved here in 2012. Okay. And for me, as a white person, as somebody who moved like into the entertainment industry at that moment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, before that I was working like in live performance in Chicago, in live performance in Boston. So I was sure I was interacting with people interpersonally, Mm -hmm. but now I feel like I've been in rooms. I've been at award shows with like the folks who, you know, the like Laverne Cox and Mm -hmm. Angelica Ross, like people that are the names that I can think of Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. visibly changing the game. But like, I might've missed a bunch of stuff. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. It's not something that like perhaps I wasn't tracking mm-hmm. folks, you know, the way that you might have been or mm-hmm. somebody who was looking for that kind of um association and mm-hmm. connection. So I I think I'm curious about like where where does this start for you? Where does this feeling of affinity start for you in your life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because so in the book, the book is like a, a history of trans images on screen since the beginning of moving images. Why do I not have this? Um, Somebody send this to me. I'll buy it. We can it. take care I'm of that. I'm gonna fucking buy it right now. Why did I not prep for this by reading the book? What an idiot. But it is, it's part history of trans images on screen, but also part memoir. And so what I kind of mm-hmm. do is like take my own unfolding gender journey and juxtapose it against some of these you know what I consider to be pivotal moments in in culture um now a lot of it is focused on the last decade or so of the industry that coincides with you know the time that I've been a reporter covering these issues in Hollywood um but that's also you know been the we are experiencing the the most visibility right for the trans community um black trans community especially in this moment after these 10 years then ever before in culture um but i do you know i do one of the points of the book is about tracing the presence and the experiences of trans people on screen and gender nonconformity on screen before laverne cox and orange is the new black mm-hmm. because i feel like in in our in our broader cultural discourse it often feels as if people think we dropped onto the face of the earth with her in that particular role and yes. it's like actually you know we have been rendered on screen in various different ways um before that you might not have known that the person was trans you might not have known that this is you know a, a type of character that we can trace to the uh, the, mm-hmm. the very real material realities of trans people today but like mm-hmm. it's all connected Um, Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, I go, I predate film and television to talk about the existence of trans people, people we would consider to be trans today, I should say, in every culture on the globe since the beginning of time. Um, One, to show that like, you know, we, we are not new, we are not an aberration in the matrix, we are as, you know, you know, human and or divine as everyone else on on this earth. Um, And then starting with the advent of moving images from the silent era, talking about how, you know, the vaudeville cross-dressing acts, you know, became the very first gender play um, characters that we see on screen, which then lead to, you know, um, you know, images such as a... Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire or Tyler Perry as Medea or um, the movie Tootsie or Bosom Buddies, you know, all these other yes. examples of stuff. And then I bring it into kind of the this current moment and we have a conversation around a show like Pose. We have a conversation around a character like Uncle Clifford on the show P-Valley. Um, and really, I think for me... You know, I say that the book's journey started while I was at the LA Times doing reporting on these issues and feeling like somebody, that there should be a resource for this history of trans images on screen and there not being one. Um, Today, I think now we have Disclosure as a documentary that is a really Mm -hmm. good resource that comes Mm -hmm. from the minds of uh, and mouths of of trans folks. I had the opportunity to participate in that documentary. Um, But now the book is really, you know, an opportunity to hyper focus in on a Black conversation um, while not neglecting 
neglecting the broader history. But I think when we when we can hyper specific when we can hyper focus on the most marginalized of of our communities when it comes to this discussion, um, and and comparatively both the most marginalized, also the most visible in a lot of ways in this moment, and also the most you know impacted by the epidemic level of violence that the American Medical Association has called super problematic. Um, that that negatively impacts Black trans women in films more so than their counterparts. Right for the last, I think, four years, that number has continued to get higher yeah. and more and more historic. Um, and so I say all that to say that you know the book is really an opportunity to kind of tease out this question and this this experience of visibility being a paradox mm-hmm. and trying to get us as folks who are interested in these conversations of representation and inclusion to like move from just representation for representation's sake and get to a place where you know the material realities of trans folks black trans folks especially you know in in our everyday neighborhoods right um are improved um not just the the handful of folks like a laverne like a angelica who wrote the foreword to my book um you know the the privileges that they're experiencing in this moment Okay, so then I'm just going to say super personally, do you have some character that you've seen? Yeah. Feels um so I indelible I, to you. Yeah, I well I say that like my original possibility models is it's a um kind of a uh, a mixture of these two two um, people, real people that I saw on television via reality TV, and then this scripted character. Those two people are Miss J. Alexander from America's mm-hmm. Next Top Model, as well as Andre Leon Talley, who I learned yes. of via America's Next Top Model, but had yes. this great, fabulous, you know, career as a top editor at Vogue. Um, and then the third is the character of Noah on the show Noah's Ark, that oh, was. Yeah. Um, written and directed by Patrick Ian Polk. Those are kind of my three earliest images that like signaled some sort of possibility about a difference of identity, right, than than what I was experiencing growing up in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, But in terms of a... a, an image on television that I feel like represents and sort of captures the lived experience of me today. I talk about the character Uncle Clifford on on P Valley. I think I, even though the character is not played by a non-binary or trans person, I think what Nico Anon does in that role breathes a a, a particular humanity to that type of character in that type of particular space that I think we we haven't really seen on television um, um, ever, really. Okay, well, that is an area that I need to catch up in. So amazing. Thank you for this wreck. No problem. Um, it's so here's good. what I'm going to say. It's like, gosh, I'm really, I'm thinking about my experience also with Miss J. Mm-hmm. That is such a moment, a cultural moment Look, lots of things about that show, about America's Next Top Model. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Are (laughs) whoopsie-daisy. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of (laughs) what in the fucking world. Absolutely. Now now that it's, I mean, good gravy. There's a lot. But guess what? I was watching every season as it was unfolding. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I'm just saying, back in the day, I think many of us looked at some of those situations on that show and we were like, okay, well, that's odd. But now, post-pandemic and everybody's rewatch, it's like, oh my God, that was really bad. What were you doing, Tyra Banks? I mean, it really is that, like, it is a, it's a cultural, it's an evidence of a massive cultural shift. Because that show, a lot of it makes no sense. But at the time like changed my life, like mm-hmm. loved to watch it, huge fan. Yes. Um, and I think that I'm, and I haven't, I don't think I, I haven't like rewatched. So like, if I'm wrong, <laughs> let me know if you have rewatched. But I'm thinking about Miss J because, so like Tyra was so powerful mm-hmm. at the time. So powerful, uh, sort of a, person to not be i mean the whole character on the show was mm-hmm. like person to not be challenged mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean i kind of think like 
I'm trying to think of a, in terms of reality TV, it's, I mean, RuPaul is Mm -hmm. now in my mind in this role of this is my, I'm so cool, calm and collected and in charge of this show. Mm. I'm so, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the people that I have as my contestants. Mm -hmm. These are the people I have as my judges. Mm -hmm. Nothing can be disputed here. And the reason I'm saying that is because in that moment, anybody who's especially like a younger listener or anybody who wasn't watching this as it was live, like bringing out Miss J with Miss J, this Mm -hmm. is who this is. No conversation. No. I mean, Mm -hmm. because it matters who was doing that. Mm -hmm. Like it matters that it was Tyra because of the way she was on that show, which is I am I am omni. (laughs) Like I am omniscient. I am unchallenged. She was the boss. She was the boss and so clearly the boss. And, you know, like I think about like a Heidi Klum who's like on TV just being Mm -hmm. like, I'm supportive and like a sweetheart, (laughs) you know, like is a different energy to like, I'm in charge. And so I don't know. I'm, I, I think I'm just taking a moment to feel like affected by the beauty of that person of Tyra introducing that judge in that way. Cause it's so vouched for. There have been post post pandemic there, or I should say, post the height of the pandemic during everybody's like rewatch. There's been so many articles about um, America's Next Top Model, looking back at it, interviewing people who were on it. Um, mm-hmm. I remember Miss J Alexander mm-hmm. and and Mister J Manuel yep. were doing this like um, at a point in the pandemic they were doing this IG Live. Um, series oh where they would talk yep. about each season um, of of the of the show, and they would give like some behind the scenes tea about you know who had the real power, who had the real influence, who was really making making decisions. But yeah, I mean to have this like black gay man who's super effeminate, super you know gender nonconforming in his presentation, who to be clear made a name for himself in the fashion industry, right? As as a model himself, as somebody who was you know training the best of you know. Um, supermodels on their walk to like to hire him um, and and not just have him like be behind the scenes mm-hmm. you know influencing the girls but also be on camera right um, I think it is a super important you know big deal in the grand scheme of of, of television representation of, of queer people black queer people I always say that reality TV doesn't get its justice when we talk about notable moments in in television history i feel like we we always talk about the girls on the scripted side who are you know winning the emmys winning the oscars etc but we don't talk about the reality tv contestants or 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 characters or judges that that pop up um and are their own form of visibility for so many folks um so that's why I ended up writing a whole chapter in the book on like trans women, trans people, black trans people on reality television, um, because I wanted to, you know, give them a, a little love for the the paths that they paved in their own way. Yes, I, you know, I hear you. I mean, and for queerness writ large, mm-hmm. massively mm-hmm. impactful. Mm-hmm. I mean, to trace Absolutely. the roots of Pedro on the real world as a person yes. living yes. with AIDS. Yes that we can love um, and then lose, you know, as a, Mm -hmm. as a cultural community, massively impactful in terms of changing people's um, you know, just empathy quotient yeah, or sympathy quotient, which both, you know? Yeah. And I even think about like, even just to be specific about America's next top model, Kim, who was a lesbian contestant on that show? Mm. Yes, is one of with the red hair. She has like brown hair. She was she was a. Here's why she was a big deal to me because I had, I mean, I guess Ellen existed, but she yeah. came out as a character. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can't remember, like there were lesbian characters, like you know Lucy Liu was kissing Lista Flockhart for some <laughs> reason, and that was like. <laughs> and that was during fall sweeps. And that was like all of the previews on TV were like just that. And then you watch the actual show and it's like, well, th- 
It wasn't even a longer kiss than what was in the previews. You got me. You got me. And they were just joking anyway. So, right. You know, but um, yeah, like that. That is a person that was talking about their own life as opposed to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who was written by somebody else. And especially yeah. in an era where like there wasn't own voices writing going on. This is the mm-hmm. only time to mm-hmm. like get. You know any connection to people's real lives, people's real lived experience. Um, oh man, Noah's Ark was great. That show was—I mean, Noah's Ark is amazing. Yeah, iconic and canonical in all of the other fabulous words. I love Noah's Ark St- still to this day. I love Noah's Ark. They—they they have a um a, a TV movie that is supposed to be coming out on um Peacock, I believe, soon. Holy shit! Um, it's already filmed. Where they like pick back up original with cast? The, the characters with the original cast, oh the entire original cast comes back. Um, Patrick Ian Polk wrote and directed it, you know, um, and so I can't wait for for that to be released to the world. But it definitely is like one of those shows that like we, for those who have never heard of Noah's Ark, we should say it's basically like a black gay sex in the city, mm-hmm. basically, um, or like a black, you know, or a gay, a gay version of living single, depending on what references hit for you all out there. Um, but it's like the type of show that like hasn't been done again since yes right yes um it's one of those like one of one type shows but it, it was really good it ran for two seasons on logo um back in the day it had a a tv movie originally and then during the pandemic patrick and polk got the, the the guys back together and they did like a, a youtube like mini movie uh based on the pandemic and then now there's like a another TV movie um, that they've put together that's like I think 20 years after the series ends that they like pick back up. So I'm super excited for it. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, that was a while ago. So like, I can't wait to see. I am curious about those. As, yes. because, as we keep doing this in for various shows, like <laughs> I feel. I mean, there's there's some that I just don't know what those faces uh-huh. look like today, and uh-huh. I. Can't wait to see. Uh-huh. Um, Listen, it will surprise you. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna. I may after we get off this, I may do a bit of a do a quick Google. I'm gonna do yeah, <laughs> do a bit of. A, but you know, something that affected me about that show is also um, like a range of masculinity. There are mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. for black men mm-hmm. on cable network i mean to like just to see that at all to see um there were like some braids going on i mean there were it was a it was a for me i i felt like it was something that i look until i saw queer as folk i did not know two people who had penises could have sex facing each other because (laughs) That information was not given to me. So I didn't know it. I didn't know. It. I was watching the show. I just remember the, the, I was like, you're kidding. But like, you know, that is, especially in an era of Noah's Ark, like mm-hmm. gay men were not in love with each other. Mm-hmm. And certainly not mm-hmm. like black gay men. They're not in, mm-hmm. they were not in love with each other. This was mm-hmm. like, you know, Every it was a like coming for your children, hooking yeah. up and leaving. You know, like it yeah. was. There was no, um, in terms of like the prevailing cultural narrative, it love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not I mean that's the history. Yeah, that's the history of queer images in in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that like. You know, we we have more often been the sassy best friend. We have been the, you know, j- just one queer person in a whole narrative because queer people don't I, have community. I talk about this all families. the time. I love this. Yeah. I love this. I, lo- I love one queer person. Another thing I love <laughs> is, look, <laughs> look, just, like here the show New Girl did this where it's like, it's like just a ton of white friends, one black friend. How did this person end up yeah. in this situation? Yeah. What yeah. is, how is yeah. this, this, how is yeah. this, this man's life? Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's stuff like that, that I'm always like, 
you can tell that like this this the point of diversity or inclusion was just like y'all just wanted to check a box <laughs> because there is no way right that you should just have one queer person on the show that queer person has somebody they know whether somebody, somebody they're dating one club. Whether, they've been to akbar once come on yeah, right they- yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 wild. Um, but like you but you're right, that's that was the history. And I think Noah's Ark was was unique because it was, you know, you had four four different gay men who were gay in real life playing, right, these gay characters. There was, you know, one of the love interests who was like a, you know, he was straight before he started messing with one of the main four characters. Um, um, that's Jensen Atwood's character. So you kind of had that experience in the community represented as well. You had femme folk, you know, like some of the main dudes are more femme presenting like Noah. Then you had your more masculine folks. Like you really ran the gamut. The show was a great kind of educational tool around sex education, HIV AIDS, because one of the one of the characters was um, ran a ran a clinic for the community. Um, that's also how just some tidbit information. That's how the the initial show kind of got off the ground um, was Patrick Ian Polk got some grant funding um, to to help do the initial show. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Because, because they were doing, you know, using part of it as right. like HIV AIDS education. Yeah. Um, and so like that's how he helped, you know, get some of it off the ground um, before they turned it into the full television show. Um, but yeah, it really ran the gamut in terms of the representations that it had of, of Black queer people um, and in a very Black context um, that we just did not see on TV. And, and I would say we have not seen on TV or in film for that matter since. Yeah, for sure. I mean, thank you, Peacock, for... <laughs> <laughs> bringing uh, back this one option right the only one that we'll ever get no that's let's hope let's let's uh ask the gods okay so we're gonna move into a we're gonna move into a wrapping up zone because i want to send you back into your day um well, I guess this is the final question I want to ask, which is like, and I don't know how to ask this without asking you know, like, <laughs> to like just do just, it. Okay, do you how how is it today? Like, and you know, mm-hmm. you feel free to name outlets. That's what I'm like. I'm like, I don't know how to do this without mm-hmm. giving you a scorched earth uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mandate or whatever. But like, how is it for you today? Do you feel supported in the work that you're doing? Do you still feel that you're doing you know all this are are you still bringing in the journalist you want to hear from you know in mm. the the meta, the metaphorical journalist you mm-hmm. want to hear from or how is how is it today for you in your work yeah i mean i i think i think hmm how do i want see what i'm saying this? now do you see what i'm saying about what i said i don't mm. know how to ask this i mean here's the thing i i want to be clear that like i think there is there has been an immense amount of progress right when we're talking about representation when we're talking about opportunities that folks have been afforded to to tell their stories or tell other stories um for the queer community for the black community for the black queer community for the black trans community more specifically um and yet there is still much, you know, room to go, right? And I don't want people to get complacent thinking that like everything's all honky dory because we had a show like Pose on television, right? Because even though Pose was legendary and historic in its own right for what it did, we haven't had another Pose since, right? Um, we haven't had another, you know, narrative that centers in a real way trans women at all, let alone Black trans women, you know, on 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 television. Um, and we have examples of other narratives, other trans narratives that have made it to the to the screen. I'm thinking of a of a movie like Monica, um, if you've mm-hmm. seen that or have not seen that stars Trace, Trace Lissette. Lissette. Yeah. Um, 
wonderful movie, great movie. I hope it gets, you know, the the necessary awards attention. Um, however, when you hear about the journey and the struggle that Trace and that team have had to go through in order to get it into theaters, let alone, you know, get it in front of audiences, um, despite the industry's support and the accolades and the standing ovations, you have to also wonder for yourself, if a white trans woman, Trace Lissette, is having to navigate that, what do you think the black trans women are having to navigate, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I say all of that to say that I think in the work that I'm doing, a lot of it is is still, you know, having to to help people reorient how they're thinking about this work because they see writ large diversity, equity, inclusion as a matter of checking a box, but they're not thinking long-term about the ways that you go about making these folks feel, you know, like they belong mm -hmm. in these various spaces, both in terms of the characters that we're seeing on screen, but also in terms of kind of our everyday experiences. Um, the last thing I'll say here is that, you know, there's this GLAD statistic um, about trans representation. Um, I mentioned it in the book. At the time I wrote the book, I think it was like 80 some odd percent, but now it's been adjusted to like 70, 75% of people say they've never met a trans person. And so GLAD uses this statistic to say that if 70 some odd people say they've never met a trans person, then the images we see on screen become all that much more important yes. because they're learning about trans people, right? Yes. Via what they're seeing on screen. Um, and so I take that statistic and I go a little further and I say, well, that's 70, 75% of people believe they've never met a trans mm -hmm. person. And the reason why mm -hmm. they believe they've never met a trans person is because the environment around them, the community around them is not safe enough for the trans people who are already there to tell you their truth. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I say that as a means of getting us all to think about how our own individual work could be creating a safer community for the trans people who are already there to tell us that they are already there. Yes. Um, and and I think that's how we get to a point where we're not just applauding on screen you know, increases in representation and diversity, but we're also thinking about the the very real material realities of members of the community. Um, and that becomes even more vital when you bring into the, you know, the, the political context yeah. that we are all navigating right now. And so, you know, film and television is often treated as very superfluous in our society, as something that doesn't matter. Um, but the reality is it, it, it matters so much because through it we are not only learning about each other but we're also learning about ourselves well what i'm gonna take from that beautiful answer is that you're still doing an enormous amount of work in <laughs> in you'd be correct in you'd be sweeping correct. up the <laughs> fucking <laughs> the i don't even know the the brokenness around you as you do your job uh so thank you for doing that um, Not a problem. You know what? What? Th like years ago. Look, I don't mind quoting myself. Years ago, I had a. This is was a thing. That about. <laughs> Before that guy broke it. Um, yeah, I do. I do that old thing. Yes. Yes. I had a tweet that I felt particularly proud of where it was, it was like during the heyday of every possible bathroom debate. And I just was like, hey, guess what? And this is going to sound wild in terms of your fear around someday sharing a bathroom with a trans mm -hmm. person. Surprise. You already have. <laughs> you already have. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway and nothing happened nothing happened everything went just nothing everything happened went as long as, as it was supposed yep, to yep yep never been an incident actually of anybody but you know that's a whole <laughs> we got a whole, a whole other uh look 
you're, I, I love talking to you. Uh, this was a true delight. And, um, I want to send you back into your day by asking you one final thing, which is, will you shout out a queero? This is a person, place, or thing that made you feel you could be who you are today. Um, would you shout out a queero? Yes, I will shout out a queero. And I'm going to go with somebody I already mentioned, Andre Leon Talley, mm-hmm. um, as a journalist, as somebody who was in this like fashion entertainment space, who was just very self you know, confident in in how he was moving through space. I think he opened up so many opportunities for Black queer journalists, even though he himself didn't necessarily identify as queer. You know, life is complex and complicated, everybody. Leave it alone. Um, But he is somebody who I consider to be a possibility model for me um, and super honored to, you know, have been able to interview him a couple times before he died. Um, I mentioned in his book on page 262, The Chiffon Trenches, if anybody wants to check it out. Um, But yeah, that's who I would shout out. Well, thank you so much. And thanks thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network. Of artist-owned shows. Supported. Directly. By you.